0: You're listening to Code Switch. I'm Shereen marisol Meraji,
1: And I'm Jean Demby. Shereen, mm-hmm. today we're talking about churches, places that provide for people in need and people who are in danger. And right now, there are a lot of people in need.
0: That's right. And congregations all over the U.S. are stepping up and offering to protect immigrants facing deportation. It's being called the New Sanctuary Movement. But it's actually decades old, and our Code Switch teammate Adrian Florido is here with more on that. Hey, Adrian.
1: Hey, you too. So Adrian, this is happening now because of the Trump administration, right?
2: Yeah, because people are afraid that the Trump administration is is going to be coming after a lot more undocumented immigrants than the Obama administration did. Under Obama, a lot of immigrants here illegally were allowed to stay in the country if they didn't have a serious criminal conviction. Mm-hmm. Even people in a lot of cases who had already been ordered deported, they were often allowed to stay as long as they checked in with their immigration agents from time to time. But now under the Trump administration, we're hearing these stories about people showing up for these meetings with their immigration agents and being detained or deported, whereas, you know, in the past they'd been allowed to stay. So instead of going to these meetings, some people are are choosing to hide out in churches.
0: A woman named Jeanette Vizguera, her story has gotten a lot of media attention, and we're going to talk to her in a bit. Jeanette was about to check in with her immigration agent, but was afraid that if she did, she'd be deported.
2: Right. So last month, she actually took refuge. She moved into a church in Denver. And on her first day there, she gave a press conference from the inside.
3: Uh, Even
2: though it's been eight long years up to this point, I know that this is not the point to give up. And my fight is going to continue. So that was on February 15th, and she hasn't come out of the church since. Hmm. So this is what's been called the New Sanctuary Movement. Hundreds of churches have stepped up across the country to say that they're basically going to become places of refuge for people like Jeanette who are facing deportation.
0: So hold up a second. If they move into the church, immigration agents can't come
2: after them. No, well, technically, immigration agents can come after them, but Uh they don't do that because the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, or ICE, has this policy that it doesn't make deportation arrests in what it considers sensitive locations. Mm -hmm. So that's places like schools or churches. So, yeah, as long as someone stays in the church, they're usually fine. But what that means is that, like Jeanette, they're stuck there indefinitely. But
1: doesn't that mean that these churches are essentially in conflict with the government? These congregations are taking people in. And then what? I mean, are, are they daring the government to come in and get them?
2: So, yeah, basically, right? And that's sort of the big tension here between the government and this sanctuary movement. It's sort of becoming this, this conflict between the church and the state. But in my reporting recently, I, I noticed that this big conflict between the church and the government, it's also created this other underlying tension within the sanctuary movement itself. Mm-hmm. Should churches publicize the stories of the people they're taking in?
0: And that's what you're going to dig into on this episode.
2: Yep, and to explore that question, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I went to a church here in D.C., a big, beautiful brick church with six columns out front and a steeple that soars above the neighborhood. Anyway, on the night I went, uh, people were packed into a big, multi-purpose room at the church. They sat at round tables, they ate soup. They'd come from dozens of churches and synagogues across the D.C. area for one reason. They all wanted to become sanctuary churches. And so this meeting was like a training run by this big national group that's teaching churches how to do this kind of sanctuary work right now. This group is called the Pico National Network.
4: So uh, I have a question first. Um, How many clergy does it take to stop the deportation? I don't know.
2: (laughs) This man is Richard Morales. He's from Pico. And because so many of the folks in this room had never done this kind of work before, there was this one point he really wanted to drive home. And it was how much power he thinks clergy have right now to protect immigrants facing deportation. So he told the story of a grandfather who recently had one of those check-ins with ICE. And all indications were that this man was going to be deported.
4: But three clergy were inside and we had 100 clergy outside waiting for him to do And they knew we were there. And Catalina was not deported that day.
2: Morales said Pico is organizing clergy to do more of this because they think it's been working.
4: What we learned is that when clergy show up and say, we are going to stand, and we're not going to let any vulnerable person in our community stand alone, that they're being heard.
2: And it turns out that this tactic of having clergy be really public about what they're doing, this is one of the central strategies of Pico's sanctuary work. So after the meeting, I asked Morales why. We
4: are losing right now the narrative fight. The narrative right now that's out there in this country is that the administration, they are, they are deporting people that are a danger to the community. And the reality is that that's not true, and they're lying to the American people.
2: So what he was saying was, think about it. If you have a church that takes in someone who the government wants to deport, and the priest or the pastor is standing up and saying, this is a good man, this is a good woman, and telling that person's story, well, that's that's a powerful image. And when Morales says it's up to each congregation, that's what Pico really wants them to do to capture the public's attention, to try to change hearts and minds about undocumented immigrants living in this country.
4: If we're private, if we're not doing this publicly, then we don't have those opportunities, right? So um, we think that pub- going public um, is, is really important to, you know, everything that we're doing in terms of the work that we're doing around sanctuary cities, pushing back on this negative and wrong narrative, right, um, and also stopping deportations.
2: So that right there, that is what Morales sees as being the broad goals of this new sanctuary movement. To protect immigrants, but also to challenge the government's narrative. But this is where it gets tricky. Because what if a person needs to take sanctuary but doesn't want to go public?
5: It's a complicated question.
2: That's Allison Harrington. She's the pastor of Southside Presbyterian Church in Tucson, Arizona. Her church has been doing sanctuary work since the 80s, when it founded the first big sanctuary church movement. Back then, Southside and other churches took in Central American migrants to protect them from being deported and returned to the wars in their home countries.
5: The beauty of doing the public work is that you're able to mobilize a movement around the individual. You're able to really um, allow them to tell their story. And what happened in the 1980s? 80s is the American people, their their hearts and minds were really transformed about what was happening in Central America, and that eventually led to a change in policy.
2: But Harrington says there were also problems with the way the work was done.
5: It was approached as a kind of a white savior mentality.
2: So that was evident in obvious ways, like when John Fife, the pastor of the church back then, was portrayed in the media as a kind of cowboy pastor, as Harrington puts it. But it also happened in more subtle ways. Susan Bibler-Coutine wrote a book about this. It's called The Culture of Protest.
0: I think one goal of the movement was really bringing middle-class Americans in touch with Central Americans who had suffered tremendous adversity and persecution and oppression in their country. There was a desire to hear and publicize those stories for knowledge and understanding, which is really important, but also it could be perhaps uncomfortable for the Central Americans in some cases.
2: Coutine says many, many Central Americans did want to share their stories, but not all of them. Some people she spoke with resented having to become public figures. The thing is, for churches, going public is super important. Many feel it's the only way to protect themselves from accusations that they're harboring criminals. That was true then, and it's true now. Pastor Allison Harrington says the desire churches have to go public with someone's story is understandable, but it becomes a problem if they make that decision on their own.
5: I think that if a, if a church is is wanting to really stand in solidarity with someone and they find someone who needs sanctuary, there shouldn't be a, a condition to that. <laughs> it shouldn't be, yes, we'll protect you, but you have to do this work publicly.
2: This is the balancing act, public versus private.
5: You know, to do public work is to say to somebody that you have to have your life laid open for everyone to see and how do you make that a more equitable relationship where people are not just receiving our charity or receiving you know this gift of sanctuary but how are we really understanding that that we are not the protagonists in this story
1: All right, y'all, so we're back in the studio adrian it sounds like this question over whether to be public or whether to remain private is only just one of the tensions that the churches are trying to deal with right
2: Oh, yeah. There's all kinds of questions they're having to ask themselves right now as they get ready to become sanctuary churches or do sanctuary kind of work. Some of them are really basic questions, right? Like, who do we take in? Will we take in someone who has a criminal record? And if so, what kind of criminal record? Mm -hmm. And then there's other stuff like, you know, once a family or an individual moves into the church or the congregation... How do we manage that relationship, right? Because in some cases, these people could be living within the four walls of the church for months or or even years. Wow.
0: Right. That could happen to Jeanette Vizquera, who we heard from earlier. You spoke with her about her experience in sanctuary so far.
3: Yes, they're doing us a favor by giving us a safe place to stay. But we still get to make our own decisions.
0: More from Jeanette after the break.
1: Stick around. Support for Codeswitch and the following message come from Squarespace. Get a unique domain and create a beautiful website using Squarespace's all-in-one platform and award-winning templates. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade, ever. Visit squarespace.com to start your free trial and use offer code CODESWITCH for 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Make your next move. Make your next website.
0: back. Before the break, Adrian broke down how congregations are making their sanctuary plans. And one big reason why it's so complicated is because these churches haven't actually taken people in yet.
2: Yeah, in fact, across the country, we only know of a handful of people who have already taken sanctuary in churches. One of those people who has is Jeanette Vizguerra, who we heard from at the top. Jeanette is from Mexico. She's a mother of three young kids, a longtime activist. She's lived in the U.S. illegally since the 90s. But eight years ago, she was convicted for using fake documents to get her job as a janitor. So she was ordered deported. But under the Obama administration, she was never actually deported. She kept going to those regular ICE check-ins we've been talking about. Last month, she had a scheduled ICE check-in. But because of the stories we've been hearing about people being deported from those, she decided she couldn't risk it. She couldn't risk leaving her three U.S.-born kids behind. And so she decided to move into a church in Denver where she lives. And that's where she's been living ever since. So I called her up a few days ago. Hola, Jeanette, como esta?
3: Bien. Buenos
2: tardes. Oh, so Good what did Jeanette day. tell you? Well, she said she was having kind of a stressful day because she hadn't found anyone to pick her kids up from school yet. Her kids are still living at home with their dad, but Jeanette is still coordinating their lives from <laughs> inside this church.
0: Of course she is.
2: So her alarm sounds at 6.30 every morning uh, And she gets up She calls her kids at home and tells them it's time for them to get up Because their ride to school is going to be there Hmm. Ever since she took sanctuary There's this whole committee of people Who volunteer to do for her A lot of the things that she can't do anymore Because she's stuck inside this church Wow. And so here's the thing, Jeanette obviously really appreciates This work, right? She considers these people her allies She needs Mm -hmm. their help But it's also, you know, it can get challenging for her It can get frustrating, she said Because, you know, she does have to depend on other people
3: For the most part, the people who are granting us refuge are white people, people who aren't affected, people with privilege. And often we notice that they see us as poor victims, when that's not what we are. When we make the decision to seek sanctuary, it's because we have the courage to face our situations, to fight our cases, to resist. At the same time, we notice that these same people want to take the leadership role, when it shouldn't be that way. I tell them, I control my own life, my future, and you are my allies. You are part of my fight. But I make the decisions because it's my life and my
2: future. Have there been moments when you've noticed that your story has been used in ways that you didn't really agree with?
3: Yes. In fact, recently there was a person running for office and he was telling my story at events where he was also raising money for his campaign. So I let some of our allies know that I was bothered by that and that I needed this politician to come and see me. So he came, and I told him, I have no problem with people using my story if they are going to give something back to my community. But when you use my story for personal gain, especially when there is money involved, I am sorry. I won't allow it. That's not right.
2: And Jeanette, what about within the sanctuary movement itself? Have, Have you noticed times when... You know, people who wanted to help you didn't really understand this dynamic?
3: Yes. Either they don't understand it or they don't fully grasp it. For example, every Sunday there is a meeting of the church's immigration committee. And a lot of the times, it's like they want to ignore my decisions. They will want the coalition coordinator to be present before deciding on something. And so I have to say, hey, you need to understand that the coordinator is just that, the coordinator. So she's the liaison between all of you and us. But we, the people who are affected... We make the decisions, no one else, not even you. And so it kind of falls on me to speak up for myself, but also for people who are newer at this. Yes, they're doing us a favor by giving us a safe place to stay. But we still get to make our own decisions.
2: So then you are in communication with a lot of the other people who are currently taking sanctuary in other churches.
3: Yes, right now there are about nine of us across the country. We have calls every week. A lot of times we talk about these sorts of things, about the frustrations we have because sometimes our churches or privileged people want to make decisions about our cases or about how to manage our campaigns. It's a learning process for all of us.
2: So when you see that there's so many churches that are interested in doing this kind of work right now, do you kind of worry that sometimes maybe they aren't doing it like quite right, or maybe are even doing it, you know, poorly? Uh,
3: yes, it's a balancing act. I worry about the way in which, uh, as my pastor says, the sanctuary movement has become sexy. It's in vogue, and so now churches seem to be saying, I'll join in because I want to be a part of this. But some are doing it without really understanding what it entails. I get a lot of messages from churches through Facebook, so I ask them to explain to me why they want to do this work. Is it because you truly want to help or because the movement has exploded?
2: You know, a couple of weeks ago, I went to this meeting at a church here in Washington, D.C., where maybe 60, 70 churches were getting trained on how to be sanctuary churches. And one of the things that the organization that was training them said was, it's really important for you as congregations to be public about the family or the individual that you take into your church. So I thought it was really interesting that, that for this group, that was the goal of sanctuary, right? To use sanctuary as a way to make this broader political statement about our nation's you know, current immigration policies.
0: That's
3: something we're going to have to discuss, because there are two issues. First, it's not that they are offering us sanctuary. We are requesting it, and as I've said, We control our own lives, so we are the ones who decide whether to go public or not, because you can't force that on someone. The only ones who absolutely have to know that we have taken sanctuary are the Department of Homeland Security. They are the first people who need to know, so that they know not to go looking for us at home and disturbing our families. Once someone is in the church, they don't necessarily have to go public. We have had people who haven't wanted to be really public or in the media spotlight.
2: So it sounds like you're saying that the specifics of each individual case are more important than this larger goal that some people have for the sanctuary movement.
3: Yes, because we are talking about real people and their futures. There are people who have taken sanctuary quietly and kept it hush-hush, and it's worked for them, because some people think for themselves, if I go public, what will the people who know me say, or uh, the people at work, what will people think? So if someone isn't comfortable, we can't force them. Maybe a church can just send out a generic press release saying that someone has taken sanctuary there, but that they don't want to go public.
2: Is there something else you'd like to say about the sanctuary movement,
3: Jeanette? Well, yes, it's that uh, this new sanctuary movement is just that, new. And we are all doing this work at the same time that we are learning how to do it. We need to make sure not to do things with the intention of helping someone that actually end up harming. Don't use us. Please, don't use us, because we've suffered so much already.
2: Well, I wish you lots of luck, Janet, and, and thanks for taking the time to talk to us.
3: Thank you for the interest. It's important to clarify what this movement is and should be about, because it's also about educating people.
0: If anyone needs some music to give them life, it's Jeanette right now. Adrian, please tell me you asked her what song she's listening to to get her through this.
2: I did, and she said that she's listening to John Lennon's Imagine.
3: Imagine there's no
2: It's what she hears every time her kids call her because it's her ringtone
4: Imagine all the people
0: living for today.
1: adrian man thank you for coming in there
0: trying to make me cry again what the hell
2: <laughs> thanks
1: guys all right, y'all. That's our show. Follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Codeswitch. We want to hear from you. Our email is codeswitch at NPR.org. Subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found or streamed.
0: Sammy Ennigan, Walter Ray Watson, and Maria Paz Gutierrez produced this episode, and we had original music by Ramtin Louis.
1: A shout out to the rest of the Coastwish fam, Lee Danella, Karen Grisby Bates, and Kat Chow. A special, special shout out to our intern, George Sinis, who helped us find the right voices for this episode.
0: And one more special thanks goes out to Ali Dayath, who did the voiceover for Jeanette. Our editor is Juleka Lantigua Williams. I'm Jean Demby. And I'm Shereen Marisol Meraji. Be easy. Peace. But I'm not- don't miss Terry Gross's conversation with Hamilton creator Lin-Manuel Miranda. He talks about how making mixtapes as a preteen prepared him for being a Broadway composer and how he crafts elaborate rhymes without tripping over his tongue, which is really hard because I trip over my tongue all the time just reading this copy. Also on the Fresh Air podcast, you'll find in-depth conversations about Russia, Trump's business dealings, and segregation in schools. Find Fresh Air on the NPR One app or wherever you listen to podcasts.